Hey there folks, this is Garrett Dawn with Command Z, and we're here tonight with a very special podcast uh, with a very special guest that I'm honored to have tonight, who is Mr. Antero Ali. And here at Command Z, it is my goal to highlight and share the work of people who advocate the use of the body, the awareness of the body, and individual awareness as central to consciousness exploration. Uh, because often there's a huge disconnect for people between what they study and explore and then their body and their daily life. So Antero uh, is the reclusive author of eight books, an astrologist, an underground filmmaker. Uh, he's also the founder and director of the fascinating Paratheatrical Research, which is an active resource for group paratheater work in Berkeley, California, and a world-renowned authority on the eight-circuit brain model as first developed by Timothy Leary, who endorsed Ali's first book, uh, Angel Tech. Uh, once a year, Antro conducts an eight-week online course on the eight circuits, uh, and incidentally, the next one starts on March 15th. Uh, for more information on that work and that course, go to verticalpool.com and also paratheatrical.com. And I'll also direct you guys to the links that you found just above where you found this file or where you are listening to this audio right now. So without any further introduction, uh, I'd like to welcome you, Antro, to the show. And again, I'm honored to have you here. Well, thanks for um, inviting me. It's good to be here. Great. So from talking with you and reading about your work with the Eight Circuit Brain Model and the Paratheatrical Research Group, it's obvious that the body uh, remains powerfully engaged in your work on consciousness exploration. And I think that sets you apart from many other uh, so-called consciousness pioneers in that the body seems to be uh, directly involved in all of the work that you are putting out there and then in your own explorations. So let's go into the discussion with that in mind. That sounds good. Um, you know, Timothy Leary, um, who first developed uh, his model of the Eight Circuit Brain back in the 60s, he used to be called, uh, he had a nickname in Harvard called Theory Leary. And uh, partly because he produced reams and reams of theories. Um, and when I first um, came upon his book, it was called um, uh, Exopsychology at first and then Infopsychology later on, mm -hmm. uh, where he outlined the Eight Circuit process. I thought, well, what a really brilliant book, but I can't really see how, in the way he describes it, how it might be able to um, be applied in somatic or physical or daily experience. It seemed more abstract to me. And that was, um, that knowledge, that kind of insight right there just um, spurred me on to thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can present my version of this Eighth Circuit model and gear it more towards the embodiment of the consciousness that's symbolized by the eight circuits. And that's where um, the inspiration for writing my first book, Angel Tech, came from. Yeah, that, that is wonderful. And incidentally, uh, I recall reading that book a long time ago. And at the time, I was very fascinated with some of the concepts, uh, particularly no form, uh, which we'll get into a little more tonight, hopefully. Uh, but at that time, I hadn't gone through any kind of uh, body transformation. And that was one of the first books that uh, sort of slapped me down and uh, forced me to, to understand some of those theories uh, from a physical perspective and also integrating them into my uh, daily life. And then, of course, uh, looking at your book, The Eight Circuit Brain, 
uh, even more so uh, the exercises and the awareness uh, that's promoted and, and offered in there definitely relate directly to the body and, and into one's uh, actual experience rather than something that's sort of a hobby or, or a, a mental experiment on the side, even though it does have uh, some cognitive yeah, and mental components. One anecdote with uh, the second book, The Eight Circuit Brain, um, uh, subtitled um, Navigational Strategies for the Energetic Body, um, it came out in 2009, and it wasn't. It was never a book that I ever wanted to do. Um, after writing Angel Tech, I thought I was just done with the Eight Circuit model. There was just I didn't know what else you know I could really you know present on it. But um, after 25 or 30 years passed after writing Angel Tech, um, I realized in returning to the Eight Circuit Brain system um, that I began to discover new connections within the grid uh, that I had not written about. And also, I was compelled, you know, turning 60, uh, feeling like an old geezer, that uh, it was time for me to maybe give back to the community, but specifically to the community of the generation uh, younger or even younger than the younger one, like those coming into their 20s and 30s at this time. So my motivation for writing The Circuit Brain was primarily not for myself, whereas Angel Tech, I actually wrote that for myself. It was not meant to be published. I never wrote it in order to you know, have it go out, you know, and um, be read by tens of thousands of people or whatever. Um, and, but this one, definitely, I wanted to get out there into the hands of, um, you know, the younger generation. Right. And from what I can tell, it's very much appreciated. And uh, as you discussed, I think it brings the Eight Circuit model uh, down into the hands of people who really uh, can benefit from working with it. And it actually is a, a, a nice way to ground ground out uh, some of the consciousness uh, exploration and expansion. And, and actually, that's one of the things that fascinated me about looking at your just your brief write-up about the eight circuits uh, on your website, even the connection between each of those circuits, um, the, the, the survival, the physical survival circuits versus the, the so-called higher uh, four circuits and the connection between those two, which was something I had either neglected to notice or, or didn't fully integrate the first time around uh, in my experience with those, uh, with that model. Yeah, I found that, um, you know, putting the circuits aside, because the circuits in and of themselves, um, they basically refer to um, like a symbolic way of um, organizing or ordering um, essentially chaotic experience in the body and even out of the body. And what I discovered was at the bottom four circuits, uh, which represent physical, emotional, conceptual, and social survival, um, tend to act or can act as anchors to help stabilize and integrate the shocks linking to the upper circuits of um, somatic, psychic, mythopoetic, and quantum intelligence. And I came to discover four very distinct types of shock that come along with experiences that um, this particular model might call somatic or psychic or mythopoetic or quantum intelligence. For example, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that a shock that almost anybody um, these days is really familiar with is that's the shock of ecstasy. Uh, not necessarily the drug, although you know that can, that can trigger ecstasy too, but any kind of uh, full-bodied experience of rapture and the ecstatic expression of, of joy in a kind of a very here-now, 
place in its own way is a is a bit of a shock to the previous um uh four circuits you know can kind of blow your mind a bit it can rub against the grain of our you know conditioned moralities it can mess with our sense of territory and boundaries you know when we're in a state of ecstatic rapture so that's why i call it a, a, the shock of ecstasy is a fifth circuit shock and the sixth circuit um uh the psychic uh or neuroelectric um circuit uh i found that uh, that links to shocks of um escalating uncertainty you know those times and places where let's say we're between jobs or we're between houses or maybe we've you know been evicted or we're between relationships and all of a sudden there's this huge massive gap opening up and we enter an escalating state of uncertainty. So it's a bit of a shock then. People can go into these kind of numb places when um, their nervous systems um, uh, basically reach, you know, the limit of how much uncertainty they can they can permit. Um, also, you know, the shock of uncertainty can, you know, can also act as a highly creative state. Um, you know, as an artist myself and the artists I work with, we all know that... Um, you know, improvisation and the creative process depends on, you know, the comfort that we, we can show and not knowing what the hell is going to happen next. And this, you know, going along with that flow. And the um, uh, mythopoetic uh, seventh circuit uh, correlates to the shock of unity or indivisibility, you know, those moments where, you know, you come into some experience and, you know, there is no division between you and anything else. And there's this kind of overall, overarching, overriding sense of just being, at, you know, at one with everything. And you know, the ego is completely obliterated at that point. And you're seeing yourself in the eyes of others. And whenever you're condemning one person, you're actually condemning yourself. You make someone else happy. You make yourself happy. So there's no division. So this is the shock of indivisibility that comes to us through the seventh circuit and the eighth circuit shock, um, links us with the experiences of, um, impermanence. You know, we come into those, um, moments of, um, you know, great loss in our lives where, um, you know, we were under the spell or the trance of things lasting forever or, you know, yeah. things staying the way they should stay. And all of a sudden the rug is pulled up from beneath you and, you know, things are not so permanent after all. And that can be a bit of a shock, too. And I found that these upper circuit shocks can be stabilized and integrated um, by lower circuit work, meaning um, the work it takes to integrate physical, emotional, conceptual, and social intelligence. So I, I'm, I'm, I kind of went on a rant there, but that's, that's the basic... Um, you know, uh, part of the interconnectedness that I discovered and why I wrote The Eighth Circuit Brain, the new book, um, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Think that, that interconnectedness is is exquisitely beautiful. And that's something I didn't even notice uh, in Wilson's take on it. Uh, no, no. And, and he writes it, he writes really nicely about it. But the way you just described that, uh, let's visit one of the specific examples, uh, Circuit 6 and Circuit 2. So we have, and I also saw you mention Circuit 2, for example, relates to the will to power. Yeah. Uh, now, instantly, I had the thought that, okay, in these situations of uh, uncertainty, like you mentioned, between homes, between relationships, between jobs, uh, that, and like you said, people can become numb. Now, let's say the, the will to power has uh, become integrated in some sense. 
then each time those uh, those shocks of the in-between space arise, suddenly the if the will to power is activated enough or integrated enough, at least from what I'm understanding, uh, those become very rich and powerful experiences. Uh, Absolutely, rather, you know, rather yeah. than devastating or destabilizing, they could actually be more stabilizing and provide uh, opportunities that could be found that could not be found otherwise without the shock. That, that's exactly right. Um, oftentimes, especially with a circuit six shock of uncertainty, if the second circuit, if the emotional intelligence uh, and the will to power is not you know, realized or active, uh, it's very common people are left with feelings of powerlessness and helplessness. And that sort of makes things worse in a way. And, and so you, know, you can stay in a state of uncertainty uh, only for so long before it transforms into anxiety. And anxiety is, is, to me, a word to refer to people, uh, the, the kind of state of nervous energy people enter when their nervous systems reach um, the, the limit of how much uncertainty they can permit before, basically before becoming nervous monkeys. Yeah. And with um, the second circuit integration, when the will to power is activated, basically, um, you know, the wonderful thing there is, is that... Um, you know, it helps you um, permit more uncertainty, basically, and allows you to um, uh, endure uh, greater stretches of uncertainty and even work with the, uh, the force of uncertainty as, as a creative uh, process. Yeah, and it seems that uncertainty uh, also has the power to reveal uh, the malleability of things, which then... You can see how to change or improve or transform your current situation in a, in a way that's uh, healthy and, and beneficial to you. As Wait, to that's exactly that's right. Happening. What you just described there is, is uh, one of the functions of the sixth circuit, and that is metaprogramming. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, so the model makes perfect sense. It, it yeah, makes so, sense. You know, pro reprogramming your own nervous system through um, you know, entering heightened states of uncertainty. Yeah, so uh, that makes perfect sense. And I, uh, so that's what, as I was rereading just the brief descriptions of these that brought uh, all the eight circuits home in such a real and tangible way that I had never, uh, never really witnessed before. Just, uh, you know, reading about them just to prepare for the uh, prayer for the talk here. And it just it struck me as uh, exquisite how they all seem to fit together in that way. Uh, I felt like yeah. an upgrade of my understanding of the whole, the whole system. Yeah, it's fucking elegant. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. So it's 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 awesome that you were able to make that connection, and then from there put together the book where you can start to explore and integrate and develop those experiences uh, in a more deliberate way, rather than uh, perceive yourself, you know, as a victim of them as you start to experience consciousness expansion. Well, like I said, it took um, a lot of years of just living life um, to get away from the. Um, you know, the eight circuit brain as some kind of intellectual, you know, model and just live my life. And, you know, the state of uncertainty or the state of impermanence or ecstasy, they have nothing to do with symbols or circuits or anything. Those are real energetic states that people, you know, get into and endure or flip out around. What the eight circuit brain model can, can do is simply a kind of a diagnostic medium where, you know, you can use it to identify and organize certain uh, experiences to better, let's say, 
navigate those experiences and, um, you know, work with them rather than, you know, become victimized by them. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's ultimately a great goal or a foundation for any kind of um, research or exploration into consciousness Uh, and consciousness expansion is is in order to always be aware uh, of when you might be slipping into a victim sort of state. Mm-hmm. A victim mm-hmm. of external circumstances or internal feelings or ideas about yourself and whatnot. So having right, right. A, a tool set like this is, is yeah, the self victimizing, uh, self stabbing syndrome. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's very easy to fall into and, and sometimes difficult to see outside of. So that's uh, another piece of beauty about this model is that it just gives you some very specific. Uh, ways to understand what's going on, but none of them uh, lead back to that self-victimization. Uh, mm-hmm. which it just gives you something to work on. You say, okay, well, obviously this is the shock that I've had happen is similar to this, which relates to this, uh, let's say, circuit number three. So if I can focus on uh, the will to reason and rationality and, and try to understand things in this way and integrate uh, my experiences in, in that particular way, then it can then you'll get instant results with some some uh, stability. And well, some that's very interesting. Interesting you bring up the, um, the connection between circuit three and seven, because in the shock of indivisibility, um, when the intellect is faced with this all-encompassing unity, see, the intellect is what gets shocked. Uh, the intellect functions through duality. It really requires um, association and comparison to function. And when you enter an experience, um, where all of that duality would enter basically a non-dual experience, the intellect doesn't know what to do. And so it, it's basically put on stun. It's just stunned. And at that point, um, uh, it can be, um, uh, the intellect can fall one way or the other, in a sense. It can um, kind of flip out and go crazy and frenetic and trying to figure out what is really not going to be figured out because non-dual experience is not going to be figured out by a dualistic intellect. This just doesn't work that way. So it'll either freak out and kind of go um, into a frenetic um, chasing its tail mode, which is kind of like a crazy-making activity that we all know about, or it can humble down and say, okay, I'm basically part of something much bigger than me, and I don't know what the fuck it is, so I'm going to pay attention and see what I can learn. And so if the intellect has the capacity for humility, then basically you don't really need to um, humiliate yourself so much. Um, And so there's this choice between humiliation and humility. Um, There's a very important intellectual choice. And then um, the intellect can begin developing a language, oftentimes uh, leaning more towards a poetic rather than a rational um, expression of words and thinking and languaging. uh, so that perhaps the entire um, relationship to words and putting words together and language transforms. Um, this is something that I, I um, you know, learned. I, I had a, um, a medical emergency, a kind of a mini stroke experience where I lost uh, the use of languages. I, I knew it. This was long, long ago, about 25 years ago. And I had to completely re- uh, review my relation to words and how I wrote and how I spoke and how I thought. And it took a couple of years to kind of get back to a place where I could actually start communicating to other people what it is that I saw, felt, and experienced. But it was 
at that point much different than anything I had known before. And the main difference was that I, I was done using words to simply explain stuff and it became more important for me to find ways of arranging words to trigger the experience of the energy of the state I was in, not just for myself, but for other people. And so this informed the writing, my writing style and the way in which um, I maybe script, you know, dialogue for my films and just sometimes just the way I speak, you know, with people in daily conversations. Um, I'm more uncomfortable explaining myself. I'd rather, if I could, um, find ways to, you know, trigger the experience of the energy I'm experiencing. In you. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah, it brought to mind uh, there's actually an exercise by the old, uh, one of the old teachers, uh, Vernon Howard, uh, that mm-hmm. was where you resist the urge to explain uh, yourself to anyone and ultimately to yourself as well. <laughs> and uh, such a simple seeming exercise, but it, it uh, seems well, to be I certain. learned a lot from. From Bob Wilson, Robert Anton Wilson, and I got to know him a bit back in the um, early 80s and, you know, inspired quite a bit by his writing. And he told me one day that uh, one of the um, old English words for um, magic uh, was grammarie, and that the, um, of spellcasting, of arranging words and spells, which are invocations, uh, as a means to... Um, um, trigger or incite, you know, particular um, energetic effects, you know, beyond yourself. Right, right. I recall some of his discussions uh, about that as well. And I know the, the uh, well-known uh, Golden Dawn text kind of begins with that assertion. And then uh, seemingly most uh, folks who end up studying it lose track of that. But that's the basis of the entire study. Uh, was how how language and words and expressions uh, easier said than done but people can experiment with this right away by minimizing the the use of the word is aha now i knew that was going to come up in this discussion <laughs> at some point and i was i felt glad about that and as i put together my notes for it i noticed <laughs> just from knowing that you and i both uh, have some experience with that that i would have uh, the pressure of expressing these points without the use of the to be verb. Uh, challenging. Yeah, challenging, but always uh, always valuable. Uh, evocative. Definitely evocative, yes. And that, that seems to, it does relate to a sort of uh, more poetic sense of expression. Um, I recall doing that uh, with my college papers, and suddenly the grades uh, went up very easily, but none of the professors really recognized why or yeah. what was going on in the writing. But it was—it uh, felt like an almost effortless way to improve writing, focusing on well, that I, one point. I found by um, minimizing the is word, um, developing a way of speaking, writing, thinking, languaging, um, that it became, in a sense, more friendly towards um, my more um, non-dual experiences, more of the, um, what I call the seventh mythopoetic um, states of consciousness, uh, which are not, those states of consciousness don't seem to be very is-friendly. They tend to um, um, 
synchronize uh, and um, work better um, with ways of thinking and languaging and writing that um, uh, minimizes the um, the demonology of is. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I notice there is a sense of laziness uh, that I will indulge in when. Uh, well, once we've talked about it, and hopefully people listening, once they've listened to it and let that sink in, they may notice that the is word stands out more than it used to in their awareness. Uh, yeah. That, that works, uh, that happens to me. And then in particular, like I said, preparing notes like this. Uh, but it makes me want to go back and look at all the things that uh, I've put up online and other places and, and see if I can't make those a little bit more clear by removing those to be verbs. Well, one, I think one easy way of um, uh, demonstrating how the is word works um, is that in any given paper that you're writing or any, you know, anything that you're talking about, simply replace the word is with the mathematical symbol for equals, equal sign. Mm. And you will begin to see a pattern of formulaic thinking. And when you are using the is word um, consistently, what happens is that you are creating a series of formulas. This equals that. This is that. This equals that. Formula on formula on formula. And eventually, your whole thinking process becomes formulaic. There's nothing especially wrong with that, except that it tends to um, tends towards more mechanical thinking uh, rather than creative thinking. Yes, I can see that uh, right away. And that's that's a wonderful practice that definitely I will write up and put alongside this uh, this recording. I think that's a fun little exercise that uh, if people get nothing else from listening to this, they can give that a try and see how far they, they can go. So let's, let's leave this fucking is word behind and move on. Exactly. So one thing, <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to, uh, uh, to talk about, and if, if we end up back at the eight circuits, that's fine. Uh, if not, that's also fine. Uh, but I also was really fascinated this time around by uh, your paratheater work. And I think it relates uh, pretty clearly to, to some of the Eight Circuit work. At the very least, obviously, both are, are informed by each other since you spent a lot of time on both of those. Uh, one of the jumping off points I found very interesting was uh, you wrote that you view the physical body as the embodiment of the subconscious mind. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so let's expand on that, because it's very related to the work that I do, and also, I think, to the interests of uh, the listeners uh, to this type mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. an audio as well. So the, so the physical body is the embodiment uh, of the subconscious mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, one of my early inspirations um, is an early 20th century um, um, kind of genius poet named Antonin Artaud, and he, um, in his book of um, uh, the theater and its double, um, wrote on um, um, the organs in the body um, really representing uh, the vital currents by which the actor, the performer, draws upon the energy from the body itself uh, without realizing that this is where the energy is coming from. And in my 30-plus years of doing the paratheater process, which is a very... Uh, uh, vigorous um, uh, physical discipline. Um, we've discovered um, 
how the energies that we're tapping and resourcing um, all come from the body. Now, what I mean by the body being an embodiment of the subconscious mind, um, 99% of what happens in the body remains um, uh, out of sight to the conscious mind. All the organs that are working, the nervous system, the skeletal system, it's all invisible to the conscious mind. And so this is part of what I'm talking about, the body embodying the subconscious mind. And so when we um, work in the paratheater process in these um, physically rigorous processes that you know, bring us to feeling the body deeply, feeling the body very deeply, um, which is uh, an ongoing practice in what we do, it unleashes uh, the forces trapped in the organs or trapped in the muscles. These forces could be memories, they could be emotions, they could be spirits trapped in our muscles, in our cells, in our organs, and they become unleashed and then we give them physical expression, vocal expression, expression through spontaneous convulsive movement, symbolic gesture, and sometimes characterizations and stories ooze out of the body um, in this paratheatrical process, which, by the way, is primarily um, non-performance oriented. There's, you know, there's no audience, you know, there watching. It's a private process, you know, almost entirely. Over the last 30 years or so, maybe 80% of everything we've done has been private. And, you know, maybe once every five or six years, um, I'll invite the public in to witness something of what we're doing or we'll develop some kind of performance vehicle uh, based on our more recent research. Right. That was something that really stood out to me about it was the asocial component. Um, and I, I want to get to that in specific, but first to give people just a little bit of background, uh, I wanted to just mention what you had written as the overall aims uh, of the work. So I'll just read those three aims okay. and then we can kind of dive in from there uh, just so people have a little bit to, to hang on to while we go into it because uh, it's a really fascinating uh, body of work and I think there might be more than a few people uh, listening who, are, who, who may be interested in pursuing it a little further or at least... Uh, studying it and getting into it a little bit more. So the overall aims of the work, as you wrote, are uh, to expand access to the internal landscape towards its full-bodied expression, uh, to increase flexibility of the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies, uh, and to interact with others from a place of heightened autonomy and integrity. Okay, so... Uh, then in terms of those those aims, I really enjoyed your concept uh, you called the archaeology uh, or an archaeology of the soul, which you referred to as an excavation process for making the unconscious conscious. Now, we just talked a little bit about that already. Uh, can you share some real-life examples that you've witnessed or that come to mind uh, in your own life or just in, in, that you've observed to highlight that process? Oh yeah, um, it's interesting. Uh, the the book that um, uh, was published um, in two thousand three, like eleven years ago now, uh, that contains about twenty five years of um, you know some of the techniques, principles, and processes of this work. It's actually called "Towards an Archaeology of the Soul." If people want to look that up, um, 
it's available at verticalpool.com if people can't find it. So the question again, tell me. The question again is, can we share? So we, you called the archaeology of the soul uh, an excavation process for making mm-hmm. the unconscious conscious, which of course yeah. most people listening are going to have uh, some familiarity with the terms uh, and some familiarity with Jung and his ideas about making you know the unconscious conscious as being one of the primary goals of someone doing this type of exploration uh, or the function of this type of work. So I just was curious about some real-life examples. Uh, well, so, um, the central uh, technique of paratheater as we are working at is something called no-form. And no-form is a term borrowed from um, Buddhist Zazen meditation uh, and refers to a principle of um, uh, profound receptivity and whatever process can cultivate a profound internal receptivity is, is moving towards um, some state of consciousness that is on intimate terms with the void, uh, cultivating intimacy with void, cultivating an intimacy with the experience of being nothing or into the potential state. And in this medium, uh, we approach that in a standing position, um, a standing position of vertical rest. And it's a particular way of standing where um, it almost feels like you could fall asleep when you're standing, but you don't. It, it's, it's a way of standing with using minimal tension or resistance. And that that sets up uh, the physical mechanics for the internal process of um, uh, no form of cultivating uh, internal receptivity. And what we're doing in the no form uh, stance um, is cultivating internal receptivity to uh, currents of energy, impulses, forces, autonomous forces, meaning forces that have a life of their own in the body itself. And so to actually um, um, engage in the process of making the unconscious conscious, there has to be established some kind of a uh, intimacy with the void first. And this is something that's not going to be very common because we live in for the most part, avoid ignorant culture. You know, people are not um, rewarded socially for being a nobody. You know, we're not uh, encouraged to develop intimacy with void. Um, but those of us who have, um, you know, bypassed the social norms a bit and are experimenting with interacting with the void space, with the zero, um, might be able to understand a little bit what I'm talking about. So in the process of no form, standing there, uh, and this is also after we've undergone a very intensive hour physical warm-up. So the, all the bodies are just vibrating with energy at this point. And then we enter the no-form process when the bodies are warm and sweaty and vibrating. And so it's very, very simple now at this point, if you're receptive enough, to begin uh, detecting currents and energies in the body. And the process that we use there is really one of observing the expression of these forces innate to the body in the movement processes that follow. In other words, we're not really about trying to control or direct the energies that we become receptive to, but rather we create more space for those energies to come forth and to fill our emptiness and to begin moving us, bending us, breaking us, directing us in this way. So in this direction, 
in a sense, the energy of the body becomes the boss. We're not the boss. The body is the boss here. And so it requires a certain humility, a certain receptivity of the ego, a certain relaxation of the social persona, so that you can at least be open to the possibility of serving the expression of these energies in the body. And then more so the stepping, you know, out into the next, you know, realm of that process is really one of, you know, um, surrender to the energies um, released from the body of giving your whole physical body over to the expression of the forces that it's unleashing. And so we enter into states of surrender to the forces innate to the body. And this begins, this is the very beginning stage of the work, um, the process of, 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 of coming into um, uh, a full-bodied surrender to the expression of autonomous forces in, in the body itself. And through that process, um, basically whatever is percolating on the threshold of our consciousness, like just below our conscious ego, and that, that will come up. Whatever is down there, whether we like it or not, it comes up and out. And so in order to do this work and continue doing this work, um, people usually have to cultivate, um, um, you know, uh, a, a, a pretty consistent um, level of self-acceptance um, and compassion towards oneself um, because it, it's unpredictable what it is that's going to come up and through you. And if you're still working on a lot of self-criticism or self-judgment or you're still, you know, kind of bashing the body in your mind or have some, you know, bad self-image problem or whatever, um, the work will simply frustrate you. And so to do this work, in a sense, you, it's, very, it's necessary to build a, um, a foundation of self-support through a certain willingness to basically accept and to work with whatever comes up, you know, um, regardless of its nature or form. Right. It almost seems that you could use, uh, you know, the Eighth Circuit model again uh, as a way to to build those, uh, to integrate those lower uh, four circuits as a way to prepare yourself for what you're describing as some of the paratheater work. Um, Self-surrender well, being a fascinating, a fascinating component of that work. It's very interesting what you mentioned here because in the um, uh, by the way we do these um, we do this process over seven to nine weeks at a time um, and when we do them I don't I don't ever bring in the eight circuit model into those processes um, primarily um, uh, because it, it it takes a certain amount of time just to get past depending on concepts and um, symbols to have an experience. And part of the overall aim of the paratheta work is really one of restoring the capacity for a more direct experience, which is to say post-symbolic or pre-conceptual. However, it's very, what I found very interesting, for example, in the online course I teach, and also, you know, in the heart of my new book, The Eighth Circuit Brain, um, I include paratheater exercises um, and rituals um, as a means to begin engaging um, um, some of the qualities and energies and characteristics of all eight circuits. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And now, as you as we've been discussing it, I see again how they, uh, the eight circuits relate. To, well, of course, they would relate to anything you'd experience if you look at it in the 
through that model. But of course, the the paratheater in particular seems to require uh, a suspension of judgment and interpretation uh, of what's going on. So a suspension of judgment and interpretation while you allow those forces to to occur, which which incidentally seems to require first a strengthening of the ego, a strengthening yeah. of the sense of self in order for there to be a self to surrender, uh, rather than defending something that you're not sure whether or not it's there. It's, it's really true. Um, and one of the ways I come to know or define a strong ego is, is really a flexible ego. And so a large part of the paratheta work um, is, is about developing more flexibility at the level of the physical, emotional, conceptual, and social egos. And as, as the ego gains more flexibility, it becomes stronger by virtue of being able to allow more experience, being able to allow you know, more uh, novelty and, um, um, you know, and the, the risk and, and the um, uh, adventure of um, opening up to um, you know, higher circuit or higher level consciousness experiences, which you know, without the preparation of developing more flexibility can be, you know, for, for many, can be quite frightening. Well, right, and, and the, the more rigid, uh, the more rigid the body, ultimately, uh, in my experience, the more rigid uh, the mind and the more conflicted the mind. And then, uh, just as with a, you know, a piece of lumber or uh, a support uh, plank, the more rigid that piece of lumber is, uh, the, the more likely it is to break uh, under pressure. Especially That's under exactly pressure right. from angles that it's not meant to be uh, sustaining pressure uh, under. That, that, yeah, that's exactly right. Flexibility is is a uh, real key to um, to the endurance of, of um, you know greater um, sources of energy. And you know, if you want to work with more energy to get more things done, you're going to have to somehow develop more flexibility, not just physically, but also emotional flexibility and conceptual you know, a more flexible mind that, and also socially more flexible so that you can uh, learn to get along with a greater variety of people. That would be an example of increasing your social intelligence by becoming more, more of a flexible personality. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the, one of the hallmarks that stood out to me about Gurdjieff's uh, work was that you, there was always a way for different interactions to to empower all the people doing the interaction or that were a part of the interactions rather than rejecting someone or or ultimately like what we do unconsciously rejecting whole types or whole groups of people based on uh, well you wouldn't even be conscious that you're doing it unless you started to bring that into awareness and then develop the flexibility to know where those people might fit in in your own process or where you might fit into theirs for an example well one thing um comes to mind, um, I mean, everything I've been speaking so far has really been the result of, you know, um, decades of work in this medium. Um, I originally got into paratheater back in um, 1977 um, with none of this in mind because I didn't know, you know, what it was or anything. I, I Up until that time, I had been working in uh, as a performer in theater for about 10 years. And um, I was a pothead and an acid head, and I loved getting high. And then I started in on this paratheta work, and I realized that I couldn't do both. I couldn't keep taking acid or smoking pot and do paratheta at the same time. It just somehow just messed messed with my head too much. 
And so I stopped um, all psychoactive drugs back in 1977 and just dedicated myself to this paratheater medium. And what I discovered, um, it got me high, that there were um, states of consciousness and experiences of like somatic rapture and and high levels of consciousness that were coming through me in this process that um, mimicked uh, very closely some of the experiences I had under psilocybin, yet without any of the kind of pesky side effects. You know, it was just a very different kind of high, and it, it was over after about, um, you know, a few hours, and I can go back to my, you know, daily ordinary life, and then you can return. But there was something about being able to regulate and to manage and to trigger these states myself, to give me some level of self-control or the will to power, like you mentioned before, that I found very attractive, especially as a young man, you know, who was trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, what power was all about. And I found a certain kind of power in being able to um, basically um, uh, conjure up and manage my own high, you know, through the paratheater process. Now, since then, I found a lot of different other different reasons for doing the work. Getting high is still part of it, but there's maybe five or six other reasons I do it now, having, you know, been at it for so long. But that's basically why I got into it in the first place. I, I you know, it was like upgrading, um, you know, my hedonic uh, uh, imperative as a young man. That reminds me of uh, Baudelaire. Uh, you must always be drunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> could is... totally relate with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good a good a place as any to start, especially when uh what you know what you're trying to alter in the beginning is probably that uh, rigid sense of normality and forcing yourself uh to live up to that uh, without even knowing what's going on or where that pressure is coming from and then as you start to become aware of it. Uh, well, yeah, for me, you can, you know, yeah. step outside. As a young man, it was all about, you know, trying to escape boredom. Um boredom was my enemy. And I, I don't have the same feeling about boredom now. I'm actually boredom is my friend now, but as a young man, I would do anything to try to escape boredom. And part of it was, you know, doing psychoactive um, drugs, which totally was not boring at all. And then the paratheater work came along and said, wow, you know, this is totally not boring too. And I don't have to take drugs to do it. So that's why I did it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful experiment and I'm excited to, uh, to delve more into it. I hope we get to talk. Uh, some more about it even beyond this this interview uh, but yeah so one thing I wanted to mention in terms of that is uh, or one question I wanted to ask you is do the experiences and processes that you and, and uh, other participants undergo in, in paratheater affect and relate uh, to the individual participants daily lives and the roles they're playing therein and by this I mean some of the seemingly mundane details uh, of day-to-day -day life. Yeah. What happens when we make the unconscious conscious? What 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 occurs? Well, um, it's really it's going to differ for each person as um, each person you know you know comes to the circle with their own you know histories and upbringings and conditionings and all that. But there have been certain um, uh, common uh, reports reports common to the people that have done this work. One of them is that um, people's uh, dream lives um, become more vivid or more active or their dream recall becomes stronger, uh, one of, or both of those. So something about the dream body uh, becomes activated in the paratheta work that somehow influences the dreams 
um, beyond the actual lab space. You know, that during the course of the week when you're not doing the work, you're sleeping at night, and you're you're remembering your dreams more. Or there's more participation in the dreams. They're not just dreams of observation, but you're actually in the world of the dream, navigating the dreams, meeting people you hadn't met before, developing relationships in the dream time. So this is one thing that's definitely been um, reported as a more common effect. Another um, would be, um, uh, you know, pretty much um, this is something that could happen almost with any kind of activity that opens your senses up where, you know, the colors become more vivid and um, there's a certain, a certain clarity of um, vision, maybe. Um, so basically, any experience where you could describe, okay, my senses are opening up, and as a result of that, I'm perceiving more reality. I'm um, experiencing more uh, impressions. My body's becoming more sensitized, and I'm respond. My body's more responsive. Stimuli. Um, there's less numbness. So these are also some of the other examples of. That I've heard, you know, people talk, um, and also for myself, um, I share I share in these symptoms as well. Right, that sounds uh, sounds really beautiful to me. I've, I've had a lot of clients share that same uh, experience about dreams, uh, you know, that have undergone uh, some of the undoing uh, work as well. That it just colors are more vivid, senses are more uh, heightened. Uh, on a semi-permanent level, too, you know, the more people work with this kind of stuff, the more that uh, uh, so-called reality seems to open up. Uh, and I see a lot of crossover there uh, in the paratheater work, uh, which is which is what really makes it fascinating to me. Uh, one final thing that you mentioned before we say goodbye here was that uh, you, you mentioned paratheater as a clear communication of internal processes as well as the application of self-created pressures of performing actions with enough commitment to influence and transform the instrument of the self. Uh, now, I wanted to, to ask you, what do you mean specifically in this context by transforming the instrument of the self? And then if you could share uh, you know, a personal example or, or an experience that comes to mind. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of different people that come to me um, to work in paratheater, and I would say about half of them are performing artists of some kind, um, either dancers, actors, singers, musicians. And they come to me with an already built-in habit or instinct of performing, that there's this impulse to perform, oftentimes connected to the impulse to please, as in to entertain, and, and so forth. And so... They come to the paratheater work um, partly to relax that urge to perform um, because they've found that it's gotten in the way of um, a more authentic expression of who they are if they're trying to entertain or please or to perform for someone else, even though that's part of the work that they do. And so there's a shift that is introduced of um, relaxing the um, urge to perform or the pressure to perform, relaxing the pressure to perform, and replacing that um, with the self-created pressures of um, of performing your commitment to the existing conditions of whatever experience you're having, 
And commitment here, as I'm using that word, is where I really look at commitment as as a force, a force that can be increased and regulated, where you can turn the heat up on commitment, you can increase your commitment. And when you increase your commitment to any direction, what results is a greater sense of follow-through. You're actually able to um, maintain and sustain um, a level of stamina with more commitment than with less commitment. So commitment is a pretty big deal uh, in life and also um, you know, in this work, in the process of um, uh, increasing commitment to uh, uh, the experience or the action at hand. And as you increase your commitment to the experience or action at hand, this will influence and transform the instrument of yourself, meaning of the doer. Um, and, and this is something that people would just have to um, experiment on themselves or find out, you know, firsthand, you know, what it is that I mean by this. But um, it's a very different um, orientation when you're performing for someone or for an audience or for a television camera or whatever, and you and you um, relax that um, uh, pressure to perform and redirect it to perform. You're still performing, but you're performing your commitment to the task at hand. So the focus is now very much on your own experience and committing to the total follow-through of that experience. And in doing so, part of the transformation that occurs results from what I call the total offering of the self. And this is part of the direction we're moving in with the paratheta work is discovering, well, what does it mean to enter an experience of the total offering of the self. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you have to, you, you need a self first before you can get past the self. But this is also a process of um, offering of the self. And that offering occurs through um, increasing the commitment to the action at hand or the particular experience before you um, in a very one-pointed and even kind of fierce way. And so the level of concentration increases um, exponentially. That seems to relate uh, directly to the aspect of, of paratheater. And we can conclude with this uh, particular point and let people go off into their, uh, their own contemplation on this particular point, which is, uh, again, the asocial uh, component, which we promised to dive into just for a moment at the beginning, so I don't want to skip that. Now we're getting close to the end here. Uh, you described that in part as a relaxing of the social persona and allowing a temporary non-responsibility to others. Now that seems yeah. to play an integral role in any kind of true transformation or transcendence process. Uh, so I'd love to hear just a little bit more uh, about the asocial component and how the individuals uh, you work with are able to achieve uh, and or explore that asocial space, which uh, incidentally seems to be missing in most other life experiences that are available to us. Yeah, asocial um, refers to a very rare um, and um, unknown, in a sense to many people, um, awareness of how to interact with other people um, without uh, the usual social um, habits and protocols, you know, such as, you know, seeking approval or, or, um, courting someone cause, you know, you find them, they think they're hot. So you want to get to know them or, you know, seeking some kind of, um, you know, uh, 
know, if it's not approval, then some kind of respect or acknowledgement. So there's a whole web of social obligations and considerations and impulses and desires that people automatically go into when they're in a room full of people. And oftentimes it's unconscious. It's not even like you're not doing it on purpose. And so a social, the word, it refers to um, kind of an intermediary zone between the social on one end and all of you know the, the ways in which we know how to socialize, like at a party, and on the other extreme, the theatrical, um, which is based on developing characters that work on stage, um, that function on stage in a story um, based on meeting specific objectives of wanting things from the other characters. In the asocial, this third zone is kind of in between them. It's not based, the, the, the mode of interaction is not based on wanting anything from anybody. Um, it's based on, um, again, going back to that no-form process of cultivating enough recept- internal receptivity to engage um, sources within your own uh, body, uh, within your own aura, within your own system, and committing so fully to those that in the process of giving expression to those, there is a kind of an offering of presence, of movement, of um, gesture, of patterns of motion, that if you have a whole group of people basically doing the same thing, you have, in essence, a kind of um, uh, uh, miraculous interaction of self-governing bodies that occurs where no interaction is forced because nothing is based on anybody wanting anything from anybody else, but it's more of this kind of uh, um, process of almost of, of grace, of, of, of a kind of an offering of what one as an individual has been working to uh, give expression to. And if everyone's doing that, so everyone's giving expression, and there's this mutual collective spirit of offering that occurs. So this is part of um, the nature of the asocial direction and how we go there um, I encourage when I work with people, you know, basically to, um, you know, to not chit chat before we get into the workspace and um, uh, to begin um, uh, shifting their attention uh, and, and training of the attention is plays a big role in the paratheater work. And the beginning process of the training of the attention is to get, get your, find a way to get your attention off yourself and put it on the space around you. And that process um, entails when you enter into the workspace itself, it's about a thousand square foot dance studio kind of space, uh, finding a way of moving through that space while relating to that space, finding a way of communicating your relationship to the space as the way you move through that space. not the people in the space. You don't relate to the people in the space. You don't relate to the things in the space. If there's a chair or a table or, you know, a piano in the corner of the room or something, um, but rather developing uh, a heightened sense of spatial awareness and relation to the space itself as a, as a value, space as intelligence, space as sacred even. And so this begins the cultivation of an asocial climate in a group setting is um, getting the attention um, off of oneself and onto the space itself. Um, and what that does is it automatically begins a, um, a way of um, 
moving around other people where you're actually honoring the space around them. You're relating to the space around them first. So the space around people starts becoming honored and respected. And just by virtue of that, that becomes a very different kind of interaction to start with. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing uh, jumping off point. Uh, and one that, that, again, I could see would could go ignored throughout a person's entire life unless it was... Oh, absolutely. That's why it, 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 it's quite rare. Yeah, exactly. Uh, rare, but then uh, I think necessary to developing some of these new types of... Uh, experience and awareness and then the ability to express uh, you know what you call true creativity to get into that truly creative space it seems uh, almost necessary especially if other people are going to be involved yeah one thing i just wanted to just in closing say this is that um um i've done this work long enough to know that uh, paratheater is not for everybody mm -hmm. and uh, it's also why i never recruit you know i never you know go out there trying to you know muster up. I mean, people typically find me through the website or through word of mouth for people working with me. And then basically, if you're going to be you know, interested in actually working with me, we, I have to interview. We have to meet and talk to see if this is something that you know, is even right for you at this time. Uh, sometimes you know, the, the timing of events is, is, is critical in terms of, okay, you, know, you may want to do this work, but <clears throat> you know, the, the, the time may not be right for you to do it now. So yeah, I interview everybody that I um uh, that shows interest in doing this work, and you know maybe um oh let's say uh mm, two out of every five people I interview then I I accept into the work. Hmm, that sounds about right. And I think that you're the way you've described it now too uh, on paratheatrical.com uh, should give people enough of a sense of what's going on there uh, to know whether or not at least taking the step of the interview uh, would make sense to them. I think you've described it in a really beautiful um, and comprehensive way there. Yeah, I think, I think it can benefit um, people who are already engaged in, um, you know, in their own ritual practice or in a dance or theatrical form or in some ways performing, whether it's music or singing. That those are the people who are, I think, have found the greatest benefit of doing this work or reading about it and applying some of the principles and techniques on their own, with or without me, are the people who are already creatively engaged and artistically um, active. And uh, yeah, paratheatrical.com is a good place to start. And um, there's also links there to not just my book, but um, there's a couple of video documents that have been produced on um, on this work, so people can get you know a little bit more insight that way. Yeah, very fascinating stuff, and I, I definitely encourage all of you listening to go take a look uh, and watch some of those videos and click on the links and, and dive into it for, for at least a, a really interesting couple of hours and see if you want to go uh, a little further with it. Uh, then also, I wanted to mention again, your Eight Circuit uh, Brain course is starting on March 15th, coming up really soon here. And uh, folks who are listening and want to check that out can find the link directly to that uh, just above you know, where you're listening to or where you found this uh, audio. And then finally, uh, again, we'll mention uh, your main website, verticalpool.com. And again, these will all be listed right there wherever you found uh, or are listening to this file. Uh, so there's a lot more we could get into, obviously, but I think we 
got into some really cool uh, and fascinating discussions there, and nice uh, leaping off points for people who are listening. And uh, I think we did a good job covering some some really fascinating stuff. So I want to thank you, Antero, for coming on uh, to do this podcast with me. Again, I'm honored uh, to have you here and to get into some of your life's work. So thank you very much for sharing. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You had some really good questions. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, all right, folks, we're going to leave you with that. And again, take a look at these sites and uh, do yourself a favor and learn more about uh, everything that we talked about and just make sure that you keep your your body involved in whatever it is that you are going to do. And I wish you all the best.